Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly. I'm joined on the pod today by Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. Uh, and because there's no midweek game to reflect back on, we'll be focusing today on the race for the top four. And, and you can hear the music swelling behind me, can't you? It looks more and more likely that Spurs and Arsenal are the two favourites to finish in the final Champions League place. I'll get on to my own rather complicated relationship with the Gunners in just a little while. But uh, Jack, is that what the experts think, that it's Spurs and Arsenal now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So if you want a kind of statistical model, a statistically modelled prediction, the website 538.com, which of course is famous for predicting elections, has a Premier League end of season probability table in which it predicts Arsenal have a 61% chance of finishing in the top four and Tottenham have a 26% chance uh, and Man United have 10%. That feels about right to me. Maybe one in four chance for Tottenham at this point. Doable, but less likely, but not likely. I think it's probably how I'd describe it. The problem is I think that I think that Tottenham, have just, I think Tottenham are, are good enough, but they just left themselves too much to do. The stupid defeats against Wolves and Southampton mean that the gap is, given that Arsenal got game in hand, I think the gap is just slightly bigger than you'd want it to be. And I actually think Ars- I think Tottenham are going to go on a decent enough run. I think they'll probably beat Man United. I think they'll probably beat Brighton. I think they'll probably even beat Arsenal when it comes to it. But I think they have, the gap is too big. And even if Arsenal have a wobble, as I expect they will do, because I think they're probably overperforming a little bit at the moment, I just feel like Tottenham aren't going to quite be able to catch them. That's my prediction. Okay, well, I mean, does that, does that seem about right to you, James? Or have you got a more optimistic view? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would tend to agree with that. I, I would say this next kind of week, 10 days, is the key period. I mean, I know you probably would always say that. But obviously Spurs playing Manchester United and the opportunity to... So what if, if Spurs win on Saturday, there'll be a point ahead with two games in hand of, of Manchester United, which, you know, at that stage of the season, I'd say it'd be quite a, quite a decent position to be in with regards to the two of them. Arsenal have got kind of quite difficult games this week. They've got Leicester on Sunday, although Leicester now without Vardy, which is going to be a bit of a shame. And obviously that Leicester are playing in the Conference League today, tonight, Thursday night. And then they've got Liverpool midweek and Aston Villa away with, with a really tight turnaround early early on Saturday. So it's not impossible Arsenal drop points in the next three games. But obviously, if, if that happens, Spurs need to be ready to pounce and to win their games. And I, I don't think it's entirely impossible that you know Arsenal end up with four points from those next three games. And if that happens, Spurs need to be there with, I guess, probably at least seven from their three to give themselves the opportunity. Does it matter that it's Arsenal, Jack? Uh, yeah, I suppose it does. It does. I mean, and one, because obviously the the massive emotional element 
And also, like, Tottenham and Arsenal have been locked in a kind of, not all the time, but on and off, really, for the last sort of 10, 15 years, um, lo- locked in similar places in the league. Obviously, Tottenham had a period where they were substantially better. It's now looking like that might no longer be the case. I have to say, I've, I, Arsenal have kind of out, have done better than I thought they would do over the last sort of two or three months. When they lost that game at Old Trafford in November, December, I thought that was probably it for them. But uh, in fact, they have gone on to play really well. And as, as, as we said on recent podcasts, I think the what Arsenal are doing well at the moment is following a model more or less like what Tottenham did under Pochettino. You know, find a find a youngish manager with a clear idea back into the hill, let him get rid of the players he doesn't like, stick with him even if results are a bit wobbly at the start. And it, it works, or at least it's, it's seemingly working for Arsenal now, even if it has taken them a while to get there. That That is definitely true. Uh, and you're right, I mean, they're definitely doing better than I was expecting them to do. But they're doing better than I was expecting them to do, like, four or five weeks ago, when they drew it home with Burnley, having just lost the League Cup semi-final to an understrength Liverpool, and been knocked out of the FA Cup by Forest. So, I mean, that, that is context. So, you know, they're a good team, and... Uh, on most arguments, if you compared Spurs and Arsenal this season, you would say they were a better team purely on the basis of the higher in the league at the mm-hmm. moment. But they're not. They're not some like, you know, unfallible, flawless, incredible sort of you know, nineteen eighties West Germany style side. They're one of a group of teams in this battle for fourth who are imperfect, like Spurs. They're, I, I don't think they're like head and shoulders way above. And, and no, like, no, they're not. But. Um... Two things that I think, and again, I'm like paranoia about them maybe partially driving this. Um, and that, that is to say, you're, you're right to say that they, they, had, they, they, I mean, famously, of course, they were bottom of the table, Spurs were top after three games. But truthfully, at the start of the season, I, I said, I didn't know that Ramsdale was going to be such a success in the goal. And he is clearly a huge success. And watching Pickford the other evening, it's very likely he's going to be in goal for England, isn't he, come the World Cup. Um, and I didn't know that Martinelli was going to, you know, actually get past his injuries and be a decent player. But I always thought that in Tierney and Smith-Rowe, Saka and White, they had a real, a real, really good bunch of young players. And the problem with young players is you never know what their ceiling is. It only takes one or two of those to turn out to be great players, and we don't know yet. And they've got a really, really good team there. And you're right, Jack, the only, the only me- or whichever you said it, the only measure of this is how many points they've got at this stage of the season. And of course, the fact that they're running into their they're in the middle of a really, really brilliant run of form uh, just now, aren't they? Do we have any idea? Next question. I'm looking at you two now. That when the uh, when the North London Derby's being rescheduled for? No, I don't know. Um, I I assume it will be late. It will obviously be midweek, late in the season. I'd imagine April or May. It, I would guess it wouldn't clash with the Champions League quarterfinals or semi-finals. Because you know, for obvious TV reasons, so that could possibly mean something. Like, Are you looking at a paper diary now? I certainly am, Danny. A good uh, man, good man. Something like the tenth or eleventh of May. Just, just, just. There's mine. Oh, you, well, if you haven't got a paper diary, you're not working properly. Or the nineteenth to twentieth of April, something like that. Um, wow. So really, really, it could it could be a straightforward decider? How fantastic is that? Yeah, well, I'm sure right. Sky well, Sports will be hoping that it will. Um, well, it is going to be on Sky Sports, right? Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. Assuming that. Um, I'm sure they will want it as late and as decisive as possible. But the problem with that is if you have it that late, it's possible yeah. that, you know, one team might be able to open up enough of a lead that it's, it's no longer so decisive when it does actually happen. 
They've got a game against Chelsea squeezing summer as well, I think, Arsenal, haven't they? So they could end up with a situation where they have to play sort of, not necessarily in this order, but Chelsea, Manchester United, West Ham, Spurs in the space of like 10 days. Which, I mean, if that happens, that probably would be quite beneficial to Spurs. Well, again, Jack quoted from uh, the, the, the website. I was looking at one the other day, which <clears throat> works out the difficulty of people's run-ins. And again, these things mean nothing when the pressure comes on, but it is a fact that it is, statistically Spurs have got the fourth easiest run-in of any team left in the Premier League. Uh, I'm perfectly aware they've still got to play Manchester United. Arsenal, have we still got to play Liverpool again? I'm trying yeah, to remember. Liverpool yeah, Liverpool well, again, yeah. yeah. Whereas Arsenal's is um, really quite hard. They're, they're, they're 12th, I think, in that list of, uh, of difficult run-ins. So that, of course, d- doesn't take into account your own form, only who you've got to play against. Um, I'm clutching rather rather clumsily here at straws of how Spurs might, might make this happen without something ridiculous uh, getting into a position where we end up calling them you know, the S word. We'll come on to that a little bit later. So it's liable to be Arsenal. I don't think personally, and and you weren't either of you, that you can count out Manchester United, which makes this game coming up at the weekend just so ridiculously big in many ways because Manchester United can't guarantee themselves fourth by winning, but Spurs could almost take them out of the equation completely, James, by actually you know going up there and get and winning six nil like they've done in the past. Or was it six one? I can't remember. Six one, yeah, six yeah, one yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I do. Looking at the table, and although obviously Manchester United have played more games, I, do, I mean the Manchester United win on Saturday. I do think that's probably a really, really good result for Arsenal because yeah. then Manchester United are suddenly what on fifty points. Arsenal play their game on Sunday with the possibility of going on to fifty one if they beat Leicester, and they would still have two games in hand of Manchester United, and then Spurs would be six points back having played a game more. So. I imagine Arsenal will be uh, rooting for Manchester United. I think that result would, a combination of those two results would probably like more or less end that, I think, this weekend. Maybe not end it given Spurs still have to play Arsenal at home, but uh, it, it would certainly go quite a long way to, to putting Arsenal in, the, in that position. Great. Thanks. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we have to talk about the Spurs against Manchester United game. It's what we're here to do, after all. I think it's very, very difficult, Jack, because. Both teams are so extraordinarily inconsistent, to use the word that the managers like, but they're just wildly fragile, both of them, in their own different ways. They are, yeah. I I have a good feeling about Spurs for this game, though. I think that United, United will play into Spurs' hands, I think. Yes, we all know that Spurs are very good at exploiting teams who play aggressively, play high up the pitch. We saw that with Everton, Leeds, Manchester City in different ways. Ralph Ragnick is obviously a better manager than Frank Lampard, but I would expect that he would he you know he's still they still play an aggressive side of football I expect them to play higher up the pitch and even though they have good players I think Tottenham will have space to hurt them so yeah I'm I think Spurs I'm feeling good about Spurs this game I think next week will be really hard you know with Brighton and West Ham back to back without that training ground time that we know that Conte desperately needs to get the team ready but this game I think will be maybe even the easiest of the three Jack um you weren't here when we discussed at the last podcast the uh, resounding victory over Everton. So let me just give you a chance to say your piece. Uh, how much worse a manager than Ralph Ranick is Frank Lampard? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> That's a difficult marker, that, isn't it? Yeah, it's it may, maybe it's difficult to compare the two of them. I think that... He's weird me about Everton. I heard Come you talk on, about say this. It. Lampard's rubbish. Do you reckon? Well, I mean... 
I was surprised how they set up in that in that in that game. It was ins- it was crazy. It, was, it crazy. was like you know what what can we le- like learning the opposite lesson from the recent Leeds United game or the or the City game, and then and then as soon as he came at the press conference, the players went under the bus. That yeah 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 that was uh, I mean that's straight out of the Jose playbook. That was yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't forget who his manager was yeah. for a long part of and his it was career. Like, it was like that when he was at when he was at Chelsea as well. But it's. Um, I, I mean, look, he knows more about this than I do, but I was, I was slightly, I was slightly surprised, or maybe I shouldn't have been, to hear in the press conference afterwards. He, he said something like, oh, "I got it here." The first 15 minutes looked like how I wanted it to. The crucial part for Spurs was to find spaces behind us and involve Harry Kane in the build-up coming off. The players were very aware of that, and they didn't deal with it. And it's always, you know, it's always the same, isn't it? It was the same at Chelsea. I don't know if it's the same at Derby, I can't remember. But it's always, you know, I set up the team the right way. I gave them the right instructions, the right ideas. But it's their fault they couldn't execute them properly. Well, yeah, and particularly if you if you think about how far up the pitch Everton played, it, it, seems, it seemed counterintuitive to me. You're talking about people running behind you, then you're playing in a way that insists that they must run in behind you. Um, because it was it was so easy. If you're to gonna do. play hype the pitch, like it's so dangerous to do that. You have to be incredibly coordinated and aggressive and organized with your pressing. And you can't I don't really know how they can be expected to be like that when Lampard's been the manager for ten minutes. Also, the players they have in midfield they all have their individual qualities, but uh, they they're not a pressing team yet, Everton, are they? They they, they lack the physicality in the midfield to close down. Completely. Um yeah, yeah and, and so it, I just didn't get it. I if you'd given me 20 guesses of how they would line up and play. The first one would be they will play across the edge of their own penalty area so they get stuck properly into the middle of the game and it just never happened. All right, so back to Manchester United because we have to have to talk about this. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a poignant fixture because, of course, it's, uh, what are we, three months, whatever, four months, whatever it is, whatever it is from October and El Sakiko. There have been times in the last six weeks, particularly when... Antonio Conte has been behaving in a way that I don't find um, very attractive, that I wondered whether whether there had been much point in sacking Nuno and appointing Antonio Conte. But, James, I think that's probably the nightmarish interpretation of events. It, it had, first of all, Nuno had to go. How are you judging the progress Spurs are making under Conte? Or does it all come down to the next 12 games? So just to go back to your first point, uh, I think you have to treat those two things separately. So so Nuno, Nuno's time at the club and bringing Conte in, like it's kind of like I always say about Pochettino, like Pochettino leaving and Mourinho coming in are two separate things. You can't treat them as one decision. So it was right for Nuno to go. And I think, you know, broadly, I think most people would think it was right for Conte to come in. I'm cert- I certainly wouldn't say there's anyone at the moment who's definitely saying it was wrong. It's difficult, and I think I think we said two weeks ago, or maybe last week after Middlesbrough, that the key the key thing if you if you want to have one of those transitional seasons where you can kind of see the buds of progress, and we definitely have seen that in the last three games Spurs have won against Man City, Leeds, and Everton. Like they've been really impressive performances, like good, you know, scored a lot of goals, they've got forward quickly, and it's been exciting to watch. And new players have played well, you know, Kulusevski and Benton Kerr have played well. And the fullback as well, which is obviously a key part of, of Conte's system. So that, that all bodes incredibly, incredibly well for Conte and his time at Tottenham. The nagging doubt is still all that moaning from before. Is that going to come back out when you know they have the next setback? If they lose three in a lot Old Trafford or they lose a couple of games in a row again or it becomes obvious they're not going to get in the Champions League or that they're not going to spend money in or lots of money in the summer transfer yeah. window. 
then what happens next season? So I want, personally, I want to feel like if he's going to stay, he's invested in a longer term than just next season. So to repeat what I said before, I'd be way more enthusiastic about it if he signed a new contract to extend for another two seasons beyond that. And we all know in reality it doesn't change that much because if he's doing bad, really badly, he'll get sacked. And if, he wants, to quit, if he wants to walk away, uh, yeah. he kind of will like he did at Inter. But yeah, it's a perception. It's a signal to the players that this guy's committed to it and this project is longer than just like the, the next five or six games. It's a, it's a longer term thing than that. I mean, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right because look at the way the Manchester United squad have reacted to Ranić's arrival Given his background, um, and footballs are not stupid, they can always ring their international teammates and all the rest of it to find out about Ralph Branyuk. If they'd given him the title of first team manager or whatever they wanted to call it, first team overlord, they could probably have convinced the players um, to take him seriously. By, by calling him whatever phony baloney title he's currently got and saying he's going to be in charge of the team for six months and then he's going to go and look after the car park or whatever the arrangement is. I can't quite remember now. It's just given the players every opportunity to mess about, which they appear largely to have done. I think, am I right in saying, Jack, that you've written in today's Athletic about the this transition from Nuno to Antonio Conte? Yeah, so Charlie and I have got an article this morning about Conte and... That really crucial period, what I think is a really crucial period to the fortunes of both Man United and Tottenham, which came in kind of October-ish this this season, which is when two things happened. The first was Manchester United deciding that post-Solskjaer they didn't want Conte. I think at yeah. the start of this season, I think Conte had thought, well, you know, back when he turned down Tottenham, Last June, I think Conte was thinking, yeah, maybe Man United will come through for me because Solskjaer won't be there forever. But United decided, no, Conte's not for us. We Mourinho Mark II, we want someone who's more of a team player, more in tune with what everybody else in the club wants, not going to be too mean to the players, not going to burn everything down. That's why United decided against Conte. And around then, at a similar point, Daniel Levy picked up the phone and said, you know, Antonio Conte, would you fancy coming coming to be manager of Tottenham again. And Conte said, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's too much of a coincidence in my mind. I mean, it's not a coincidence. The, a, Man United decided they didn't want Conte and they would prefer Poch or Ten Hag as the sort of medium-term replacement for Solskjaer. And B, Conte deciding, oh, you know what? Actually, I will take the Tottenham Hotspur job. Uh, I think those two things are completely in- inextricable. So we've got a piece looking at that. And, you know, you might... That you might speculate off the back of that, you know, what would it have been like if Man United had gone for Conte? I mean, United, I'm sure, would be probably going through what Tom going through at the moment and having, you know, they'd be playing really well one week and then terribly the next. And what Tottenham would have done under that, under that scenario, because they, they probably they probably would have had to have sacked Nuno anyway. Yes. But, uh, just because it was, would they have gone to, I mean, there's a line in the piece saying Ryan Mason might have come back in for his second interim spell. Beyond that, who knows? I mean, I've got, I'd, be, I'd just be guessing. You know, they wouldn't have got any. They wouldn't have got anyone half decent during the course of the season. So they might have had to do two thirds of the season with Ryan and then try again in summer twenty twenty two. Well, if you if you remember what the league table was like at the time, there would have been a clamour for Graham Potter. Yeah. Um, but you know, but Potter would Potter would never have walked out. No, right mid-season. absolutely. No, no, I, I get that. But that, that's what the the headline news would have been. Um, let's return then to, to uh, Ralph Rangnick-led Manchester United. The problem 
Um, James, a bit like Spurs, is that uh, we don't know which Manchester United, to use uh, the cliche, is going to turn up. I'm not as optimistic, uh, perhaps, as, as Jack about this. I, I, I feel if Spurs get away with a draw there, they'll keep their little bit of distance in terms of games played and all that with Manchester United. And for the first time be, in recent times, they'll be putting a few results one after the other. Because the bottom line is Manchester United have spent more on footballers, I think, probably... Than any other team, uh, if, you, if you look at the, the, the last five or six years when these squads have been assembled, and they're not they're not bad players. They've got lots of really good players. That's the problem, isn't it? Well, yeah, they're they're a, they're a football team that thrive on individual moments, and all of those players, you know, Ronaldo, less so Cavani, but you know, Ronaldo, Rashford, Pogba, Fernandez, they're all really good players who are kind of capable of producing moments in matches that will win. Jaden Sancho, Jaden Sancho, exactly, yeah. So there are loads of like really good players there, and if they're kind of half well organised defensively, then they'll have enough good players on the pitch to punish you at the other end. So it's you know, although they're a bit of a mess at the moment, and they're obviously dreadful at, at City on Sunday, it's not exactly inconceivable, is it, that that they hunker down? You know, they're a wounded animal, aren't they? And that's what people always used to say about Manchester United when they were properly good. You didn't want to play them the week after they'd been beaten, and. I'd, I mean, it's probably not quite the same now, but I, I think as, as Spurs fans, Danny, I mean, Jack may yeah. feel differently. Obviously, he obviously does feel differently about this. Look at his eyebrows. They go yeah, up exactly. and down at high speed. Well, you, like me, have been wounded by so many trips at Old Trafford before. And even the fact that they won 6-1 there last season doesn't doesn't move the dial. It's, it's a massive game. It is a huge yeah. game. And I, I, I would be, like, if, if they win on Saturday, I'd come, I'd come around on Monday and I'd be incredibly confident about fourth. But if they lose, I think it's more or less gone. That, that's the scale of it. All right, you can hear in our voices, both myself and James, the trep- natural trepidation of Spurs fans, particularly as the team is itself a little bit airy-fairy in, in, in terms of results and performances. But earlier on, Jack, you said uh, that uh, you thought that they would win. All right, make the case. How will Spurs, why will Spurs beat Manchester United? Well, Spurs have got a better manager than United. They are capable, I think, of a higher level of performance in United. They're particularly good against teams who play aggressively too high up the pitch. Yes, Spurs are inconsistent, but even at their worst under Conte, they haven't been as bad as United were at the Etihad Stadium last Sunday. Spurs, I think, have a better idea of what they're doing. United did have a decent enough idea under Solskjaer last year, but that's been destroyed by Ronaldo, who has made United much worse, as I predicted. That was lovely. Thank you very much indeed. We'll take a quick break now, not because we need to sell you stuff, but because such is the way of the world and how quickly it's all moving. We have to regroup our forces to understand what it means that Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned by the British government. More about that in just a second here on The View from the Lane. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to The View from the Lane, where today you're listening to me, Danny Kelly, James Moore, and Jack Pitt-Brook. We are going to talk about uh, Pochettino and uh, PSG's remarkable exit from the Champions League and a few other things as well. But first, uh, a reaction uh, from both of you to the news, I must admit, it's come out of left field to me, that uh, despite all his prepping, Roman Abramovich has now been sanctioned by the British government. I'll, I'll ask. I'll give. I'll give James a, a chance to get his ideas together uh, on a strategic level. Jack, what do you make of this? Well, it's huge. I mean, th- this is news that we, you know, for a while people have wondered: is this going to happen? Are they really going to do it? But then people thought, oh, maybe he'll just sell the club just in time beforehand, and he'll get out. He'll get his few billion quid, and uh, somebody else to take over. But th- I mean, th- this is we are in completely uncharted territory here. This is not. This is not like a points deduction or a temporary stadium ban or any of the other things that we tend to think are like an example of a club being punished. This is huge. You know, they can't, Abramovich, I believe, can't invest. They can't sell tickets. I don't think they can sell merchandise. That means that they can't give out new contracts or buy players, which means that the players they've got who are currently free agents coming to the end of their contracts, like uh, Rudiger, Christensen, Azpilicueta, I imagine will have to leave. It's, you know, the club is kind of, I mean, there'll still be a Chelsea team playing in blue, but the idea that, and you know, I believe season ticket holders will still be allowed in, but the idea that that they will not be a competitive team like they have been on the medium-term view at all, really, I don't think. This is completely fresh territory, okay? So people should have their expectations set on wide. If you know what I mean, James, you're pouring the ground there. What do, what do you know about it? What do well, you think about I mean, it? I, no, I mean, look, this has just happened now, and at the best of times, I would say I would know next to nothing about it. But even, but now, no, even less. I, I, I think these sanctions aren't. Don't they last? I think they last until the 31st of May. I think I've seen somewhere. And again, we're just kind of looking at tweets and bits and bobs. So I don't know necessarily. I mean, obviously, it could be extended, which you know, if the situation continues, I suspect would be the case. So I don't know whether it will be kind of like a longer term issue. But this is something where we are expected, all of us who do this for a living, to have a view on it. But we're, we're way past the boundaries of our own knowledge sets here and skill sets, aren't we? Because nothing like this has ever happened in English football, where someone's assets have been frozen. Is that the right word? Or is it worse? Are they being melted down? I, I don't understand. I'm not a financial. I don't, I don't understand what the idea of the, of the sanctions means. I mean... I know that he got his, um, before the EU sanctions kicked him, Roman Abramovich got his yacht out of Barcelona Harbour and out into international waters because they were going to seize it. And it is um, interesting to me that he still, he saved his yacht, which means that I think I'm right in saying the biggest yacht still owned by a Premier League owner is that of Joe Lewis. The Spurs, the Spurs owner's got a massive yacht. It's a trophy for your yacht, etc., etc. I can see Jack staring at multiple screens uh, as we speak, I'm reading the sanctions. Go on. I'm reading the <laughs> live sanction reading. Um, so basically, so they've been given a special license to continue to play football, which allow, which means that they can pay their employees, they can stage games, 
they can travel to and from games, but they but what they can't do, as I said, is give out new contracts, sign players, sell merchandise. I think only season ticket holders can go to games, which means that they can't, you know, they can't sell beyond their season ticket base. And the interesting thing is, you know, if they beat Middlesbrough and get to the FA Cup semi-final, then, and, you know, under normal circumstances, the FA would give the club 40,000 tickets or whatever to sell at Wembley. But if Chelsea can't sell tickets, then what will happen to the, what would happen to the Chelsea half of Wembley? Uh, if Chelsea were to be in the semi-final, I don't know. I mean, look, this is this has come out in the last thirty minutes. I think everyone's trying to get their heads around it. But yeah, it's uh, pretty big. I'm just thinking forward to the Champions League final in um, Paris. If Chelsea make it, and if the sanctions are still in place again, you've got exactly the same issue there. What do you do? Do you send do you send along the supporters of the losing semi-finalists? Do they do they get by <laughs> through to the final in Paris? Incredible. Paris Saint-Germain, of interest because they're such an interesting club, but also um, because Maurizio Pochettino, the king across the water, etc., is their manager. They did what Paris do, didn't they, last night in, in what was an incredible game to watch? Um, because they don't, don't let's not pretend that Real Madrid were fantastic and suddenly broke Paris Saint-Germain down. They were, they were okay, but they were losing that tie completely. And boom, it's blown up in there. And I'm afraid to say... Uh, James, into Mauricio Pochettino's face. Yeah, I have to admit, and I don't know whether it's just because I was um, a, a bit tired and, tired and emotional watching the game last night. But I, I, after, after the full-time whistle when everyone on Twitter was getting stuck into Poch, that was the most Poch in I've been since he left for a few hours. I've sort of Good come down you. a bit now. I'm a bit, bit more level-headed now. But yeah, last night I was incredibly defensive of Pochettino. Anyone who follows me on Twitter probably would have seen a couple of tweets about it. Yeah, it, it's not it's not a great look for him, is it? I mean, they were in a commanding position, and I think as Jack has written in a piece this morning for the Athletic, not the most commanding position they've been in against a big Spanish side in uh, in a Champions League knockout stages, but still quite still quite good. You know, two 0 up with what twenty minutes to go of the second leg, and you end up going out. I mean, and it's not it's not a great Madrid team either, is it? You know, a lot obviously good players and they're experienced players there. But I mean, it's not. They're not going to win the Champions League, Madrid. But um, some of their older players, um, Karim Benzema, obviously was fantastic when he needed to be. And the sight of Luka Modric, what is he, 103, 104 years of age now? Just, and, and counterintuitively, the longer the game went on, the more the oldest player on the pitch dominated it. And he was, it was, you know, in the second half, I thought he just got better and better and better and better. The interesting thing here will be timing, of course. We've already talked about the fact that Conte hasn't got a long-term contract. Pochettino will go either now, immediately, depends on how fed up the owner is with him, because Leonardo, the guy who's supposed to be running the football side of things, has lost all power over there, um, or at the end of the season. What next for him? Because there was all talk about this. There's always talk about you know one of the big Spanish clubs coming in for him. But result like last night, that I think... I think Jack sets it back a little bit, actually. Well, yeah. I mean, it was desi- it was so bad yesterday. I think it was actually worse. I feel like it was worse than the six-one to Barcelona because they were losing to a worse team last night. You know, that's that Barcelona six-one still had Messi, Suarez, Neymar, and also PSG was sorry. Real Madrid was so bad in the first leg. They played like a small club. They had no ideas, no nothing. And they were cruising as well. They had, not only were they 2 up on aggregate, they were cruising as well, but they had, Mbappe had those two goals disallowed. So, 
it felt like they were close to going further and further ahead. And then to concede three goals in 17 minutes and all three such bad self-inflicted goals as well, I think it was abys- utterly abysmal. I mean, on the one hand, you can look at it and say, well, given that this happens to PSG quite a lot, that shows that these problems are bigger than Pochettino and it's not his fault. On the other hand, you could say, well, Pochettino doesn't have the best record in the biggest game, so maybe he's brought some of his own fragility to PSG with him. I certainly, I take the first view. I think it's, you know, I think PSG is such a kind of weird, unbalanced club internally that there's actually Pochettino, I mean, Pochettino's kind of come up against the limits of what he can fix, really. I mean, are, are they tested enough in domestic football, though? I mean, like, like no. you look at their defence, you forget how good, like, Messi and Neymar and Mbappe are, and they're obviously all brilliant players, whatever anyone might think. And, you know, they, they can score hat-tricks. And, uh, let's not get into a Farmers League thing, but, you know, they can score goals against, although Messi hasn't scored that many goals. They, you know, they can score loads of goals against, you know, Nantes or whoever. But the, that defence isn't tested by elite, elite, elite forward players. And Benzema is one of those, whatever we might think often enough and then suddenly you get thrown into a game against Real Madrid having not played that level of opposition and there are obviously good players in that league don't get me wrong but it's not the same as playing away to Real Madrid in the Bernabeu even that phrase playing away um, if you play in the Premier League for instance you know you go to a way ground after a way ground after a way ground which is full with tens of thousands of people who want you to fall flat on your face I've got to be careful here because my colleagues on Trans Europe Express will will pull me up on this but I think for Paris Saint-Germain if you survive the trip to Lyon and getting shouted at every year even the away games are kind of not big events for you I don't know I bet if you go to like Marseille or somewhere surely yeah, Marseille's the other example that was, that was coming to mind yeah and you know but then you get to a full burnabout and all, it, it, it was, it, they're just a shambles but you know Thomas Tuchel his reputation had completely survived what happened to him at PSG, and nobody in their right minds believes, do they, that Maurizio Pochettino would pick that front three if he wasn't being told so to do? A hundred percent. Yeah, it's uh, that's very clear to me. I think this team can. I mean, people talk about the front three. The issue is not. I mean, the issue isn't Mbappe. Mbappe is Pochettino's favorite player, and arguably you know, has a claim to be the best player in the world. I'd go the with issue that. is you. You cannot carry Messi and Neymar at the same time. You can have one, but you cannot have both. And we saw that yesterday. That only one guy can run the team. You can't have two two guys who want who are that kind of outsized in terms of their their claim to having the ball, their claim to being in control, dictating everything that goes on in the pitch. Is it is it safe to say this is the problem Spurs are going to have with Matt Doherty? Yeah, exactly. You, you have, You've got Kane and Doherty. I mean, what? How do too you... many geniuses on the pitch yeah. at the same time. And like the, the the fact is, the first leg Neymar didn't start. They had Di Maria, the critical player in that team. Di Maria and Mbappe up front with Messi as with Messi as a ten. They were miles better balanced. But the problem is that you know when Poch was at Tottenham, he always used to say. The players have a con- the players only have a contract which entitles them to train. They don't have a contract. They don't have an entitlement to play. I get to pick who plays, just as a way of reminding people that no player had some kind of divine right to play the games. That isn't the case at PSG because the fact is Neymar and Mbappe and Messi have to play every single game, and of course Mbappe always would. But Neym- Neymar and Messi are not <laughs> like no one who watched Pochettino's Tottenham could think that Neymar and Messi at at this point are Pochettino-style players, and yet there they are on the team every week. Well, that's what's going to be interesting this summer, isn't it? Because uh, we know there's a good possibility that they'll use Mbappe. But also, I think Di Maria's out of contract as well. So those two go, and they're left with just Messi and Neymar. 
and what, like kind of Julian Draxler or whoever. I mean, then they're really going to struggle. Well, I thought he was making a point almost by the end of it. Um, I know they had to get a goal and all the rest of it, but to, to sling on Di Maria and Draxler, but still keep the other lot buzzing around, you know, up front. In the end, it, it was like one of Arsene Wenger's uh, things where he used to sling on six forwards and hope for the best. The difference was um, that often worked for Arsenal. The background to, I mean, in some ways, the opposite, if you like, uh, to the Roman Bramovich thing that we started this section with, is that, and I'm looking, I'm afraid I'm looking at uh, you here, Jack, the issue of the stadium naming rights keeps bubbling away. And sometimes it goes away for a long time. The last two weeks, uh, I've, I've seen it bubbling again. First of all, let's just be honest about this. It's ridiculous that they haven't got this thing sorted out. I understand it's been a pandemic and all the rest of it, but, uh, you know, the, the whole point about business life is you have to be prepared for things coming down the pipeline you didn't expect because the pandemic, then there's a war, then there'll be something else. Either you can sell these rights or you can't. Have you heard any any, any whispers that they're getting any closer to that? Uh, honestly, not recently. What I have heard recently on this is the suggestion that, and this is just speculation, that it's possible that naming rights deal would get packaged into some kind of investment into the club, for example, selling a stake in the club to someone, and it could be attractive to them in that form. But I don't know if any firm progress has been made on that. The interesting, interesting thing to connect to that connects Tottenham to this current Chelsea news, though, is that lots of the people who have been mentioned in connection with buying Chelsea have previously been mentioned in connection with buying Tottenham. Todd Bowley, who at least before the sanctions hit, which has obviously nixed any move for now, but Todd Bowley was at the front of the queue to buy Chelsea in the consortium with this guy Wiss in Switzerland. He tried to buy Tottenham in 2019. Equally, I've seen other names linked to Chelsea uh, over the course of the last few days, given that every every sports-interested billionaire in the world is putting his hand in the air and getting some free publicity, who I have also seen linked with Tottenham, um, but who have maybe denied it or or I, you know, can't, I can't firmly establish that they were. But there's definitely a lot of overlap there, as there would be, because in, you know, if, if you can afford to buy one Premier League team for a few billion quid, you can afford to buy another one. Uh, so it will be interesting to see, now that the Chelsea sale is off, whether any of those people might think, oh, you know what, I'm going to go for that other team that's kind of 10 miles up the road instead. Okay, the, uh, about the naming rights, I'll just quote my, uh, my friend Sue, who is a very successful one-woman real estate organisation, um, if you can't sell that house, it's because it's too expensive. Um, it's her view on absolutely all deals. Okay, listen, thank you very, very much indeed. Sorry, can I just say one thing? Mm. And that's that I want to push back against you saying it's ridiculous that Tottenham haven't sold the naming rights. Good. Given that if they did sell the name, naming rights, you would piss and moan about it. And you would say the so-called Actimel Stadium, as we're meant to call yeah. it now. I oh, that would be great. Hotspur. I would love it to I still call that. it the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. No, no, I, I don't call. I call it's it Whitehall Lane. Lane. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, but you wouldn't. I, but you I'm wouldn't, pushing back now. I don't, Spurs fan. I don't feel like you'd be celebrating if it became the Heineken Dome or whatever. Calling it Whitehall Lane is disrespectful to the proper ground. I'm just trying to cast you as a hypocrite, basically. Okay. Okay. Well, then, <laughs> well, thanks for listening. I think I, I think you'll find much more easy to reveal and readily available evidence than that of my hypocrisy. But uh, no, get on and do it. Sorry, I'm, I'm pushing back now. Get on and do it. Um, and of course, if it becomes the Actimel Stadium, people on television will call it that. It's more to do, Jack, with the the sort of the constant iteration that um, that Daniel Levy is, is this amazing businessman. I'm sure he's done very, very well um, in many, many ways. 
But you know, this is this is basic stuff, isn't it? You know, these huge these super stadia, they have a name. And Spurs have had three, four, five years to organise and haven't managed to do it yet. Yeah, but you know, nobody uh this what used to be the city of Manchester Stadium didn't didn't become the Etihad Stadium for years and you know people people didn't care that much. The empty had. The empty had indeed. Okay. East, oh. East Wastelands, wasn't it? Wastelands, yeah. yeah. Right, so that um, that dramatic pause at which I uh, had intended to end the podcast, will Sturs just be uninterested, disinterested onlookers, or will they be in the very guts of the race for the Champions League place, has been torpedoed by Jack's insistent that I'm a hypocrite. But these are the personal rivalries on which these podcasts thrive. So thank you very much indeed for all of that. And if you remember, if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of our articles on Spurs, including Jack, Charlie, etc.'s work on this, um, as well as everything else that's on the site, a massive amount of stuff, by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now, you can sign up for just £1 a month for that last for six months, which is fantastic as well. We'll be back on Monday. Who knows where we'll be? Thanks for listening. The Athletic. <laughs>